0: Father, there is none like you. You are fully glorious, fully wonderful. And I pray that you would help us today to dig into your word, to uh, be sanctified by your word. Be glorified in our midst in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today... In our text, we encounter, honestly, one of the greatest promises that we could ever run into in Scripture. Um, Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to be in verses 7 to 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets this is the word of the Lord uh, a couple of weeks ago we we were uh, uh, and when I say a couple weeks ago I, I actually mean quite some time ago now uh, but we were in Matthew chapter 5 and <laughs> um, And there's a little bit of a parallel between what we just read and part of Matthew chapter 5. So, I'm sorry, give me just a moment. I'm running into all the problems that I could normally have. Um, Like I said, today's just not a technology day. Um, So in Matthew chapter 5, specifically verse... Uh, 17, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this is another time that we see Jesus using the words law and prophets. But in the first sense, we see that Jesus has not come to abolish them. But in our text today, we see that Jesus... um, Jesus gives a statement about us doing the law and the prophets. So with that in mind, I want to really dig into our verses today. To quote John Piper, he says of, these, uh, of our section that I just read, uh, he says, When you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that he pleases, and that he is infinitely righteous so that he only does what is right, And that he is infinitely good so that everything he does is perfectly good. And that he is infinitely wise so that he always knows what's perfect or perfectly what is right and good. And that he is infinitely loving so that in all his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom, he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When you pause to consider all that, then the lavish invitation of this God to ask him for good things with the promise that he will give them, is unimaginably wonderful. Uh, Yesterday I shared on Facebook an article that talked about how God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we might want him to, but he always answers prayers. We actually covered that as well, and we'll, we'll get there. But the general principle for today is that God hears and answers prayers. That sounds pretty basic. It sounds um, almost unexciting, but friends, I, I I promise you that it is unimaginably wonderful. Uh, so, like I said in Matthew five seventeen, Jesus is saying that he fulfills the law and the prophets. And then here, in, here Jesus says the sta- a statement about the law and the prophets saying that, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Within these two verses, we find the link. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. And then in 7.12, treating others the way you want to be treated is the law and the prophets. One is Jesus's action. The other is our action. A similar structure can be found just in our verses today. To summarize, because and this this is just in general a summary of what we read uh, at the very beginning there. Um, because God is loving, kind, merciful, and loves to show care and compassion to the people who cry out to Him, so must we answer those who cry out to us with love, kindness, mercy, and compassion. We act because God has acted. We, we sin when we try to be God, but we glorify him. We show him as wonderful when we respond like him. So let's, let's actually start touching on our verses today. Um, in the bulletin, uh, I didn't do the fill in the blank this week. I just have the points, so I anticipate that you'll be paying attention to the points. But the sermon summary is, list, is listed. Because God is a kind and loving Father who answers prayers, we are able to treat others the way we would want to be treated. So that's the sermon summary. But let's actually move through the verses and work our way there. Uh, point number one, God helps those who ask of him. Have you guys ever heard the statement, God helps those who help themselves? Not biblical. That is not in scripture. When you think of a person in growing need of help, you find that as their need intensifies, so does their action of seeking help. So just an example, an illustration. Say there is one day a friend who you pass on the street as you're just walking down Main Street. He turns to you and greets you, but then uh, then asks you if you might be able to fulfill a need of his. You politely smile and say, sure. You help him real quick. It's not a very intense job, so you just get it done. Then another few days go by and you're walking down the street and this friend comes over to you, waving his hands and shouting your name. He wants you to slow down, so you do. He asks for your help again. Yes, you answer him, you help him. He thanks you and you carry on your merry way. But then another time, you're about to walk down the street, haven't even left your house and your cell phone rings before you get out the door. Your friend urgently needs your help. He calls you. He interrupts you more than just shouting down the street at you when he happens to see you. He thinks specifically of you. So what do you do? You say, I'll be right there. You rush to his aid. You know his need is dire. His need has not only escalated in urgency, but it's also escalated in how urgent he is to find you, specifically you. Someone in dire peril will always respond differently than someone who barely remembers their own need. A drowning man will have a different cry for help than a man who left his wallet at home and went to the restaurant. Jesus presents us today with three varying degrees of desperation. They are ask, seek, Knock. The first is a need, though it's not pressing. The second is a pressing need, but it's not dire. And the third is of sheer desperation. So how might God answer these three issues? Does he wait until the most pressing is at hand? Does he wait for the knock? Causing us maybe to be in anguish until we get to the desperate point of shouting to the heavens? No. No, that's actually not what we see in our text. Some might think that's the way it is. And honestly, that's how I felt about some issues. I prayed for years to find a a wife. I mean, it was like a daily thing. It's a long story of why it was a daily thing, but it was included in a, in a list of prayers that I prayed basically from the time I was 18-ish, 17 to 18-ish. Um, it wasn't fulfilled until my mid-20s. So was God waiting until I got desperate to answer that prayer? Was that what he was doing? No, actually, in my own desperation, I almost made some pretty heavy mistakes, but God, in his grace and mercy, slapped me to the ground and made it so I couldn't, I couldn't do the things that I was doing in desperation. So some might think that you have to be desperate, you have to knock, uh, but, but, but that's not the promise that Jesus gives us. Remember, in general, the promise is that Jesus answers prayer. But, but, but look, at, look at our verses again. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened. All three of them are answered. Each of those three actions is met with a response of help. God does not only help those who help themselves. He helps those that ask of him. God answers every prayer. Remember that? I I made that statement a couple weeks ago. I aimed for controversy when I said it, that God has answered every single prayer that I've ever prayed to him. Uh, We discussed that while we were in Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15, specifically where Jesus says, Do not be like the Gentiles. Well, do not be like them, but Gentiles is implied. Um, For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here we see that truth even more clearly it will be given. You will find it. It will be opened. Every prayer you pray is answered by God. Sometimes, like I said before, his answer is no. That's still an answer. Sometimes we pray as if we know what we truly need, demanding that God answer us the uh, um, the way the way we want him to, like a petulant angry and stupid child gimme 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 now now this way only this way i want the chocolate sauce at the bottom not the top how dare you give me ice cream with chocolate sauce on the top other times we pray like this god i i know i need this please give me this if this doesn't happen my life will fall apart Friends, while earnest, those prayers might sometimes feel like God hasn't answered the request. But Jesus is refuting that. He refutes it very clearly. He says that they are answered. Everyone who, who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Every single one of them has an answer. God has always answered your prayers when you pray to him with right motives, as James puts it. Uh, He says this in in James chapter 4. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, passions is not just a, I really like, I don't know, Mustangs, and uh, so therefore I pray and um, I didn't get the part I needed to fix up my Mustang No, what he's talking about is actually sinful passions, not just you're repairing a car. Um, But when we pray wrongly, when we pray for our self-satisfying motivation, God doesn't doesn't answer the way we want. And sometimes that's exactly how those prayers are prayed. Over and over again, we tell God what we need. And yet he knows what we need before we even ask him. We don't always know what we need. But God does. And this is where we find our second point, moving on in our text. Uh, Point number two, God does not mistreat those who come to him. One of the first things we encounter in the Bible is a God who has the power to create the entire universe. He doesn't have to use his hands. He only uses his imagination and his voice. He answers a plea to a yearning nothing. A nothing that could be something. A nothing that will become something that destroys itself. Where there was no real prayer, God knew that he wanted there to be something. Something grand, something wonderful. Something that he would create, sustain, and rule over because he's the only one who would treat it right. So what happens? The creation decides that it can treat itself better than God can treat it. It rebels. And yet he knew that this creation would be broken by the hand of those he created. He also knew that one day he would redeem it. Why? Because he's the only one that could do that right too. (laughs) God does everything right. He knows what's best even when we disagree with him. We may want an easy life, but God knew Job needed sifting from Satan to discover a sin of self-righteousness that Job didn't even know he had. So, Going back into the Old Testament, the book of Job is written a whole like a whole lot like a play script. In that way, it's kind of hard to read because you hear one dude talking a bunch and then another dude talks and then Job talks and then uh, another guy talks and then Job talks. And it's just this back and forth. So it's kind of hard to read sometimes. But in general, it's a righteous man named Job who God had blessed richly. God then sends Satan to cause Job to suffer Uh, He suffers the loss of, of his family, a painful skin disease, the loss of all his possessions, and then his own wife begins to rue the day she married him. Hopefully that does not describe any marriages in this room. Then come Job's friends who make the suffering even worse. They pompously declare that he must be hiding some horrific sins. And he gets accused of a lot. That's why there's 42 chapters in the book. And then Job responds by being defensive. He declares his righteousness over and over again until another friend shows up, tells the other friends to shut up and stop speaking as if they're God. And then he turns to Job and he says, stop being so full of yourself. Before Job can defend himself again, God appears in a mighty talking whirlwind. Imagine a tornado or a storm or, a, or a, a hurricane blowing through, and instead of it just destroying everything, it speaks. He puts these pitiful little men in their place. He rebukes Job for being so full of himself. Elihu, the one, the fourth friend, was actually right. And at the end of this, uh, as God is rebuking Job, uh, Job says this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God brought a charge of him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job replies, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God brings a charge against him Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job replies, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, if Job was so righteous, what would he, what, what did he have to repent of? The, uh, the, uh, why, why do I even bring this up, honestly? Well, in the beginning of the book of Job, we see a man who's doing feasts and offering sacrifices for sins. But whose sins was he offering sacrifices for? The text actually tells us. His sons used to go, this is Job Job chapter one. So last was Job 42, very last chapter of Job. And then the very first chapter, verses four to five. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So who did he offer sacrifices for? His kids. What about himself? Job didn't see his own sin as a problem. He saw the sin of others. He offered only for his children. But through the terrible things Job suffered, he saw his own sin and repented. God gave him something right. He did what was needed for Job to repent. Friends, if you're suffering, examine your own self-righteousness. Don't make it take a whirlwind. It may be that God is giving you a whirlwind where you should examine yourselves. So going back to our text in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus poses a question. Which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Jesus' almost humorous example here has a pretty obvious answer. Nobody. Those are dumb. Why would I do that? If my kid walked up and said, Daddy, can I have some candy? Am I going to go get some uh, cleaner from under the sink and press it into a ball and say, yeah, here you go, buddy? No. Why would a father even do these things to, her, to a kid? Luke's account of this in uh, Luke eleven twelve, 12 adds another one. Um, or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Now, in our minds, we may not think of an egg and a scorpion as very similar. But what would happen is when scorpions got, uh, got too hot or too cold, one of the two, they would roll up into a ball and they would actually be egg-shaped. And it would match the same color and texture and size as some of the other eggs that were okay to eat. So all the examples are dangerous. um, And the scorpion is probably deadly. Stones are not nourishing or filling. Serpents are ritually unclean. But the one in Luke's is, again, the most telling. When a scorpion rolls itself up, looks like that egg, give it to the kid, here you go, buddy, fry that one up. Pinch, dead child. Well, poke, dead child. How could a father do that to his kid? How could a father give, give, give his son something that's going to kill him and destroy him? He won't. And then Jesus says, in verse 11, If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him when he says you are evil who are you who are evil he's not meaning that all of you are the evil dad the one giving the scorpion instead of the egg. Instead, what he's implying is you're, you're sinful, you're fallen, you're selfish, you are, you are self-conflicted, you are battling against, against your, own, your, your, your own desire to do good things. And which one of us hasn't freaked out on our kids uh, or, or freaked out on somebody else's kids um, selfishly? It wasn't necessarily them that were being naughty or terrible or anything, or maybe they were being naughty and terrible. and you overreacted. you you went Mount Vesuvius on them um, or Mount St. Helen's, because that actually did blow its top. but 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 you you overreacted. you you did things in sin to your own children who you should have loved and cherished. but but even then you wouldn't do these things. You wouldn't do them to your kids. You wouldn't do them to the neighbor kids, even though the neighbor kids might be destroying your yard. Everybody's got those neighbor kids. Fortunately, I don't, so maybe I'll wake up to a rock in the window or something. But but regardless, we know as, as parents, as family members, as neighbors, we, we know that we want to be kind and compassionate, So how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, tying that back to Job, Job needed something. He needed to be treated a particular way. He needed to be led toward repentance. And so God sent Satan to sift him. He says that to Peter, that Satan has been begging to sift him like wheat. And honestly, Job is probably the most biblical picture of what that would look like. And yet God had a redemptive, wonderful plan in the midst of it. See, God wasn't sending him rocks and serpents and scorpions. He was actually giving him something good. Sometimes the things that look the most bleak in our lives are the things that God intends to bring out the brightest light in us, the greatest redemptions. Oftentimes we disagree with those good things that God gives us, amen? (laughs) But again, who are we? Who are we to question God? God does not give stones for bread, serpents for fish, or scorpions for eggs. He's never mistreated anyone who's come to him. God's not the king that's going to look at the peasant that comes to him to plead for for mercy and just go, "Yeah, you know what? You smell too bad. I'm going to smack you out of here. Actually, I'm going to throw you out the window." You guys ever seen Emperor's New Groove? Yeah, it's a cartoon and it's actually kind of funny, but he throws an old man out of a window uh because because he he ruined the old man ruined the emperor's groove. Um God's not that way. We're not going to walk in and we're not going to ruin uh, something of God's. He's not going to be like, oh, why would you do this to me? And just beat us because we interrupted him. No, God does not mistreat those who come to him. So if God does not treat those who come to him, then, then what does that say about how we should treat those who come to us? That brings us to point three we should not mistreat those who come to us. Now, verse 12 in most Bibles is separated. It has another uh, subtitle, usually titled The Golden Rule. Um, It's referred to as the Golden Rule. uh, Sometimes we think that's because basically every other religion on earth has something similar to this statement, um, which it does. I mean, that's actually a relatively universal truth. Uh, But verse 12 says this. Uh, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12 starts with the word so. It's another form of of it saying therefore. It's a conclusionary statement, which means that verse 12 should not have its own subtitle. It should actually be included in the previous section. Um, But I... I'm not a biblical scholar in the sense that I I haven't actually written a Bible or translated a Bible. So, you know, I'm sure they have their own reasons. But regardless, basically every religion on earth has something similar to this. I actually downloaded an image that had like a collection of 20 sayings that were similar, but they were anachronistic. They were not in chronological order. So it was kind of worthless. But, but there's something special about the way Jesus says, says the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The real reason, by the way, it's called the golden rule, this is something I learned in preparation for this sermon, is because a Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, had this particular saying of Jesus embossed in gold on his wall. So it was actually written in gold. That's why it's called the Golden Rule. So why is it called the Golden Rule? Because a Roman emperor one time stripped a statement of Jesus, put just that on the wall, and lived by only that one principle instead of taking Jesus in context. Let's not take Jesus out of context, friends. So, uh, the, the reality is, again, statement is somewhat universal because uh, because God has really made us creatures of pity. Saved or unsaved, anybody has the ability to be ethical and be moved by the pain of another person. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not teaching us ethics. He's teaching us responsibility. Consider this. If you... Know who God is, know how kind he is, how gentle he is, how humble he is, how loving he is, how merciful he is, how gracious he is, and that he listens to you with an eager ear, that he brings you into redemption through the sacrifice of his very own son, that he values you with such deep compassion. Shouldn't we mirror those things? The more we learn of God, the more we lean into him, the more precious he becomes to us. The more of a treasure we see him as, the more those attributes of him begin to work their way into us. Anybody who grows in knowledge without growing in a softening heart has a big problem. The more they they grow in faith and resolute trust of him, the softer their heart should become to those who come to them. All good works in the Christian life are reactionary. All good works are generated through a knowing of God and what he did and fulfilled in the law and the prophets for us. Things we could not do on our own. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, bringing us lost, hateful, petulant, like the kid, sinners into his grace and mercy and proceeds to sanctify us, making us more holy like him. Jesus did it all. So now what must must we do? Well, we do what he's already doing. We do what he's done. Specifically in our verses again, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That is not an ethical statement. It is a command from the Savior that has already redeemed a Christian. Therefore, the Christian should respond by doing the exact same thing to others. Whatever we would want others to do to us, we do to them. And sometimes, let's be honest, that is really difficult. Sometimes people get under our skin. Sometimes people frustrate us to no end. Sometimes we would rather be merciless than merciful. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to, like God, who causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, we are called to provide that same grace and compassion and mercy. Some have categorized this as uh, this statement: uh, "Whatever you want others to do, do to you. Do also to them." Uh, They've categorized it as a statement of the pathway to heaven, which is ironic, considering the very next verses that totally shoot that in the foot, uh, where saying that good works are going to push you to salvation, (coughs) Roman Catholics. Um, But, but it's not doing this is not the pathway. To heaven. Instead, it's what we do on the other side of the door of salvation. We walk through the room, through the doorway, and now, hey, we get to love others the way we wish we were loved. Is it easy? No. Again, the very next verses that we'll hit next week. Therefore, we should not mistreat those who come to us. Because God does not mistreat those who come to him. Sometimes not helping is the best help we can give someone. Uh, we have the ability to give the answer no like God does. when, Like God has always done. I prayed for a pony uh, for a long time now. I don't actually want a pony. It's a dumb prayer. I don't like horses. Actually, I love horses. Horses don't like me. Uh, I have never really ridden a horse that has not done something like uh, break from the trail and decide to run me into brushes and clothesline me with a branch, um, I didn't fall. <laughs> I did, however, bring the branch with me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I've prayed for a pony for a long time, and you know what? God has always answered that prayer with no. I'm going to pretend that somehow that's for my own sinful passion. I don't know what I'd do with a pony. I don't know what it would eat. A pony would eat more grass than I have in the yard. It's not even my yard. It's our church's yard. Would you be mad if I had a pony in there? Just, you know, facetious question. Uh, (laughs) But sometimes the answer no is the best answer when somebody asks for help. When somebody comes to us like a petulant, impatient child demanding that we need to help them, why? Because honestly, it's... Gonna bring them some sinful satisfaction. That's why when somebody's sitting on the corner, uh, begging for money, when I drive into Newport, I don't feel an obligation to give them money because honestly, I don't know what they're gonna use it for. I have brought them food. I remember one time I brought a guy Wendy's. He was begging right next to a Wendy's. His sign said "hungry." So I, I, I pulled over. I got in my car, went inside, got him a nice, large meal with a big, large soda, and I went out to him and I was like, "Here you go, pal." And he's like, "Ah, oh, thanks." And he moves the sign, and behind him is like. Three others. Exact same thing. He didn't want money for food, and he wasn't hungry. Maybe he was hungry because he hadn't eaten what he had. But, but I remember I looked at that, and I was like, man, what are you doing? Your sign says you're hungry. And, I, and, and he's like, well, I really just want money. I'm like, for what? For drugs? He's like, Like, didn't want to answer it. Like, maybe I'm a cop. So do I look like a cop? Anyway. <laughs> but when somebody, when somebody wants us to help them because it's going to satisfy their sin, Knows the best answer. And sometimes helping people actually provides us sinful satisfaction. So we really do have to examine ourselves. The way that we would want to be treated, we should be treating others. Ultimately, the point here is that we reflect the, the kindness of God by treating others with the same type of kindness that He has given us. And in that is the law and the prophets. So going back to our sermon summary, because God is kind and, and, uh, is a kind and loving father who answers prayers, we are able to treat others the way we would want to be treated. This is the law and the prophets. That's what separates it from every other religion, is that this act, this responsive act, is living out our salvation, not earning it. Let's pray. God, your love is grander than we could ever presume upon or or assume that we deserve. Um, Your steadfast love should satisfy our souls. We should live that out with every person we encounter may we with your gentleness and your goodness show the love that we need to be showing. May we be wise and discerning what love we need to be showing. May we celebrate the times like last night where we got to give candy to kids, no strings attached, candy to kids. But may we more celebrate the times where we bring the love of your gospel to those around us. Lead us, Lord. And may our everyday lives be an act of worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I know what most of you are going through. Had a lot of, lot of you tell me the struggles that you, that you go through. And I'm sure many of you deep down have the question of, why has God not answered my prayers, my pleas, my cries, my knocks? I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking, I'm doing all three. But I promise you that he is answering them. He answers every single prayer and he does so rightly, kindly, intentionally. He is not harsh or mean to you. He's kind. So do to others as you would want them to be to you. Go in peace, saints.